Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them, but Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church family. For those of you that don't know, my name is Zane Sutherland. Um, and I get to work on our family ministry team here at Sunnybrook, uh, particularly with the kindergarten through fifth grade and so over in the, in the new kids building and I uh, love getting to do that. But as Jim has already kind of alluded to this morning, life is just kind of full of moments, isn't it? Um, just as he said, we took a moment to reflect on what Memorial Day is and all those different things. Um, and so there's moments where we do reflect, there's moments where, um, have you ever had a moment though where it just blows your mind? You know what I'm talking about? Like, it says in the text here that, that, that they all go away astonished and amazed at what had happened. And so uh, when, I, when I kind of think about those, those type of moments, um, I kind of call those like what just happened moments, right? Anybody ever had one of those where, you know, something so profound or something so amazing, either good or bad happens, and you're just left kind of asking that question like, what just happened? Any, anybody ever? No, okay, cool. It was just me. So, for example, if you need better clarification of what a what just happened moment was, so it was uh, October tenth, two thousand seventeen, and I was sitting in Paul and Julie Weiss's living room with Drew Henderson, um, and and this this may not be one of those moments for you, but it was for me, um, and we were watching the last round of World Cup qualifying for the U.S. men's national team. And if you don't know, I'm a huge soccer fan, um, diehard U.S. soccer fan in particular. And so uh, we, we went into that game just needing to draw. And I know you, most of you hate soccer because you can tie, but that's all we needed to do. That was it. Like, we just needed to tie. Trinidad and Tobago, a team that we consistently beat, 6-0, those types of things. And so we go down, 17th minute, Omar Gonzalez scores an own goal. For the, again, I know you guys have no idea who he is. He's our center back. So we scored a goal against ourselves, and so the U.S. goes down 1-0. It's like, that's fine. It's okay. And then the 37th minute, uh, this guy from Trinidad and Tobago picks up the ball on the right-hand side and scores just an absolutely beautiful goal, 30 yards out, chips the best goalie that we've ever had, and Tim, Tim Howard, and we go down 2-0. And I'm not going to lie, some panic, panic started to happen in my mind a little bit, and I, I remember going into halftime down 2-0 thinking, What's going on here? And so we go into the second half, and, and of course, our little talisman, a kid named Christian Pulisic, first ever American yesterday to win the, uh, the European championship called the Champions League. So again, 
I know none of you care about this. There's like four of you that do. But it was a really big day in uh, U.S. soccer yesterday. So, uh, but Christian Pulisic gets the ball, 47th minute, two minutes into the second half, scores, it's 2-1. And then for the rest of that game, U.S. just time after time after time, attacks, 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 and nothing happens. And the U.S. lose 2-1. And at that same time, in order to knock us out of the World Cup, Panama had to beat whoever they were playing. And in the 85th minute of their game, Panama scores. And so I'm sitting in Paul and Julie's living room. Again, Paul has not a care in the world about what's going on on the TV. And I remember Drew Henderson and I are looking there and just going, what, what is happening? Like, is this really going to happen? Like, is this, is this truly going to happen right now? And, and it did. And I remember sitting there and just like this flood of emotion coming over me. And again, this is where I care care way too much about sports sometimes. And it may not be soccer for you, but you guys have these moments, right? Where you're just sitting there going like, that just happened. And and then you begin to ask the question, so what's next, right? Like that's the question that a what just happened moment um, kind of forces us to ask. It's like, so so what does this mean? Like what, where do we go from here? And it was crazy over the next several weeks to see U.S. soccer kind of make some dramatic changes. I mean, people like Josie Altador, no, okay, Michael Bradley, cool, okay. So again, all these people, you know, if I were to say like Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, you guys would know who that is, right? Yeah, but not, not these famous World Cup winning soccer guys, okay. Um, but, you know, it, it was crazy how the reality of U.S. soccer completely changed in that one moment. I mean, coaches were fired, the president of U.S. soccer stepped down, the coach was fired, and there was a radical shift in the thought process behind how we do soccer here in America. Like, that's what happens with what just happened moments. They create a new reality that then in turn creates a new response for us. It changes the way that we live, it changes the way that we think. So again, you, you may not connect kind of with the U.S. soccer form of this, but uh, fast forward one year, May 18th, 2018, uh, Beth and I, our alarm went off at about 4.30 in the morning, and we went over to Boomer Lake um, to spend some time just praying because we knew what was coming that day. Um, it was the day that Elias was going to join us in this world. And so we, we went and we just spent some time on the 17th. Uh, just walking around Boomer and praying and being excited to meet our little boy for the first time. Um, and so we got to the hospital about 6 a.m., and they were supposed to induce Beth at about uh, 10 a.m., and what happened over the next 24 hours was just crazy. <laughs> uh, Elias did not want to join us in this world, and so he fought like the Dickens to, uh, to stay in there. And so uh, at, at 12.24 on the 18th in, in, in the morning, um, we finally, I, I remember sitting behind the curtain and hearing his cry for the first time. And in that moment going, this changes things. And then they brought him around the curtain and Beth and I got to see our little boy for the first time. Um, and then, I, I don't know if you were like me, but I had no idea what was about to happen to me. <laughs> because what they do is they just, they just give you your baby. It's like, Good luck. So, like, he's mine now? And it's like, yeah, you, you got to make sure that he, like, stays alive from here on out. It's like, okay, cool. And, and, and I remember those, those three days in the hospital just being a complete whirlwind. I remember there was, there was one moment, you know, the first night they take him for you and take him to the nursery and make sure that everything's good. The next night they don't do that. 
I don't know. They don't tell you that, though, but they, they, don't, they don't take them the second night. They have to stay with you. And so it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, and Elias started to cough. And, um, you know, Beth and I had not slept in three days at this point. And so I, I wear glasses, contacts, and they were off at that point. I had my shirt off. I was dead asleep, and he started to cough. And I was convinced that he was dying. And so I, in my panic state, run out into the, uh, run out into the hall looking like a psychotic madman that I'm pretty sure all the nurses at that moment thought this is not a man who is fit to lead kids and families. But I run out into the hallway and just, help, help, right? And, you know, this, this gracious woman came in. And again, it was one of those what just happened moments. And she was able to settle us down and calm us down and say, like, he's just, he's just coughing. Oh, okay. That's good. But I remember coming home. And Beth and I just sitting on the couch holding Elias and, and having to process, like, what just happened? Like, there's, there's a new reality that has been created today, and that's going to change the way that I live. And I think, I think that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 3. Again, you, you begin to even see the response of the people there in, verse, in verses 9 and 10. It says, when all the people saw him walking and praising God... They recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had just happened. You see, here's the thing. Sometimes, like, that's the easy response for us. It's figuring out how to respond to that moment that really matters, though, right? Like, most of us, we we can deal with, okay, this is a big moment. We can recognize that something big is happening. But beginning to understand the new reality that's been created by a moment like that and then living in light of that reality, that's more of the challenge. And so the question I think we have to answer is how did we get to this place, right? If we're going to truly understand what's going on in this moment right here, I think we need to understand again like what just happened. And so if we look back all the way back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes on the scene. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And and this is what he says. He says, the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. Like the kingdom of God is now here. This thing that the the Jews had been waiting for, the people of God had been waiting for for so long, that time had finally come. The kingdom of God was no longer up, but it was here. And so in response to that, Jesus' call was to repent, to turn away from your wickedness and turn back to God and believe and to change, to have an active belief that there was going to be something different about this new reality that Jesus was bringing here to earth, right? Like that's a what just happened moment when Jesus shows up on the scene and the people begin to respond and recognize there is something different that's going on here. And so Jesus and his goodness to us then explains like what this new kingdom looks like. If you read Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to explain this is what it looks like for you to be a kingdom person. This is the reality of how you're supposed to respond to this new reality that I've created, that the kingdom of God is now here, and I'm inviting you to be a part of it. And so Jesus shows us, he explains, okay, this is, this is the cool part for us, is that not only does Jesus establish that new reality, but then he explains and he shows us, he walks us through how we can actually respond. He helps us navigate that complex idea of, okay, something has changed and I need to live differently. And he gives us a picture of how to do that. And then he shows us, actually, how to do that, right? And in Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus in a, in a situation quite similar to this, where four friends bring a paralytic to him. And Jesus does what? He heals him. But that is a picture of something so much greater that's going on there because he says, again, which, which one's more difficult, to tell someone to get up and walk or to say that your sins are forgiven? 
but so that you know that the Son of Man has power even over sin, get up and walk. And so again, Jesus begins to paint this picture that in his kingdom, there is a healing, there is a restoration that happens that's so much more than just the physical, but there's a spiritual element that's going on. And that carries on in, in Mark chapter five where he, he heals a man of demons. This guy filled with demons, demonic possession, all those different things, and he says, get out. And what happens? The spirits obey because they have to, because Jesus is the one talking. Mark chapter eight, Jesus heals a man who is blind. And time and time again, we see in Jesus' ministry that, that the picture that we have of the kingdom, this new reality that Jesus is doing, is that he's simply reversing the curse. Genesis 3, when we chose to rebel, it broke these relationships between us, between God, between us and creation. All of these different things, they were severed and they were separated. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking those things and he's bringing them back. He's taking what is broken and making them whole again. Things that are dead and bringing them back to life. Like that's, that's what the kingdom of God is like. And so it's no wonder that when Jesus then, at, at the climactic moment of everything that's going, when Jesus dies on the cross, it's no wonder that he comes back to life. Like that's, that's just what we should have expected. First of all, because he said it, <laughs> right? We can take Jesus at his word. But then that's also the nature of the kingdom. That's what Jesus does, that's who he is. And so at this moment, Jesus again is crucified, he's put up on the cross, and it feels like it is the greatest victory of sin and death and the devil, and yet three days later, you know the story. He triumphantly, victoriously raises from the dead, and then for the next 40 days continues to explain what that just, what just happened moment looks like, right? 40 days, he stays with his disciples and he begins to continue to explain, this is the new reality that I just created with my victory over sin and death. And then, as Jim began to talk about last week, there's this moment called Pentecost, which is what we're celebrating over these three weeks, where the Spirit of God descends on the disciples. And again, I, I, I love this picture. If, if you have kids in kids' ministry, um, this is the sound that it makes. So I, again, you can do that, you cannot do that, take it what it's worth, but that's how we did the uh, Tongues of Fire last week, a couple weeks ago. But it's this incredible moment where it's a picture that so often when we see the presence of God in the Bible, it's a pillar of fire, right? Or when he comes to Moses, it's one burning bush. At Mount Sinai, as God is giving the law, it's one pillar of fire, and yet in this moment, what we see is that this one single presence has now split, and the new temples of God have been ordained that the Spirit of God is no longer in one singular place, but it is in all believers. And it's a picture that God has empowered his believers to continue the mission that Jesus established, that the kingdom of God is still here. And the work that Jesus began, we get to continue to do. And that's, that's why we get to this place right here. And I love how, how Luke begins to, again, describe this. It's, it's, in, it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. And again, that's that moment where we have now been empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what? So that you will be my witnesses, so that you will testify to the good things that I have done, to, to the power and to the presence of who I am, to the things that I'm about. That as believers, if we were to make it simple, what Pentecost is, it's a moment where, where God's people are empowered by his spirit so that they can speak true things, so that they can help people navigate this new reality that God has created, this new reality that we have the presence of the living God who rose Jesus Christ from the dead now living in us and has empowered us to continue the mission of Jesus. Jesus. 
Like that's what it means to be a witness, to help people navigate that new reality that Jesus has created. And so the question is, so, so what do Peter and John do? As this crowd begins to gather in verse 11, um, it says that uh, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astonished and they ran to him and, and they began, and Peter saw this and began to address them and, and to explain to them everything that had happened. And so what, what does this look like as we begin to, to, to kind of break that down? If, if we were to say kind of the big idea of today, I think it would simply be this, that as believers, we have a spirit-empowered responsibility to help people navigate the reality that there is salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ. Like I, I don't want you to miss this because I think when we take everything that happens here in chapters three and four and merge it into one big idea, I think, I think this is what's going on in this text, that as believers we have the spirit-empowered responsibility to help people navigate the reality there's salvation in no one other than Jesus. And so if we're to, we're to break that down into kind of some simple things, what, what does that spirit-empowered piece look like? Well, again, we said in, in these moments where we have this what just happened moments, I, I think there's two sides of that, right? There, there's the side that receives, right? As Peter and John go into the temple, they meet a man who has need. And so the question um, that I, I have to ask myself consistently as I'm going into these moments of what just happened, and I'm trying to identify what God is doing, and I'm trying to see the work of the Spirit as he continues to continue the work of Jesus here on earth, I, sometimes I have to ask my, myself, so what, what am I looking for? What do I think I need? For this man, again, what, what, what did he need? Or I guess a better question is, what do you think he thought he needed? As Peter and John approach, he says, guys, I need silver and gold. And again, that makes sense for him and his situation, right? As a man who was lame for 40 years, like his existence was just asking other people for help not being able to provide for himself, but having people carry him to this place. And I think the challenge sometimes is when the need is so great like that, we can, we can almost become short-sighted in what our true need is, right? We can settle for silver and gold when, when what God has for us is something so much more. When we don't have the right perspective, when, we, when we're not able to see what God is truly doing, I think the problem that most of us run into when we find ourselves in need is we settle for something so much less than what God truly has for us. And again, as, as he asks for what he thinks he needs, silver and gold that will satisfy that moment what he's in danger of is missing out on the bigger thing that God has in store for him. And so, to put it very simply, what do we need? We need Jesus. Like, we, we need the power of Jesus in our lives. And I, I don't want you to miss that this morning. Like, silver and gold is a temporary fix. Status is a temporary fix. Fulfillment is a temporary fix. Satisfaction is a temporary fix. Friendship can be a temporary fix. What we truly need is the power of Jesus in our lives. What we truly need is for Jesus to take the brokenness that is in us and to bring us back into life. 
Because again, what we see in this is, is when this guy experiences Jesus, Jesus meets his, his need in so much more than what he could have ever imagined. Because this guy goes from a place of brokenness, not being able to walk, to then being completely restored to his community. Going from being somebody who was just mooching off of those around him to now being an active participant in the church. There's something so much more when God speaks to our need and meets our need above and beyond what we could ever imagine. And so the question that I have for you this morning as we think through this idea of what do we need is are we thinking too small? Are we too close to our pain? Are we too close to our frustration? Are we too close to the need that's standing right in front of us that we are missing the bigger picture of what God has waiting for us? But then I think there's a challenge on the other side because, again, we're not always in need, but as believers, I hope that you are giving people something, right? Like we encounter people who have a need consistently. And so uh, on the one side, I think we have to first and foremost address the idea of what are we looking for? What do we truly need? And if what we truly need is Jesus, then I think on the flip side of that, the question we have to ask is what are you offering, like, what are you giving people? When you step in and you become Peter and John and the Spirit puts you in a situation where you're able to speak into someone's world and you're able to offer them something, what do you offer them? I hear way too many people offer self-help. I hear way too many people talk about this idea of you just, you just, you just work harder, brother, and you can get there. Just pull yourself up and it'll be fine. And if we're not giving people Jesus, we are giving them a death sentence. Like if we're not giving people the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, if we're not giving people the power of the risen Savior in their life, we are giving them something that will pass away. And that's why I think it's so important that Peter and John, they don't give, don't give gold don't give silver, they give something so much more. And so I guess the question that I have to ask for you as you consider this idea of what are you offering is do you truly believe in the power of Jesus? Do you really believe that? Like is it more than just some little painting on your wall or some sign in your bathroom? Like do you truly believe that the power of Jesus is good enough to heal whatever need anyone may have in this life? Like, do you believe that what people truly need is an encounter with the risen Savior? Because if that truly is, then that's what you'll give. Like, if you, if you truly believe in the power of the living Savior, then that is what you will offer people who are in need. And again, like Ryan said a couple weeks ago, I know, I know it can be more complex than that, but if we, in our ability to help others, are not giving people Jesus, we are giving them something that's going to pass away. And I think we have to be reminded of that this morning. And yet that's what's happened. They offer Jesus and, and what happens? This guy, <laughs> this guy moves from being in a place of frustration and a place of not being able to work into now being a man who is walking. And this is, this is where I love this story because then Peter, whoo, Peter and John begin to navigate what just happened. They begin to address what's going on and, and help this crowd understand the reality of what Jesus has just done. And so the first thing that they say, um, you, you can see it starting in verse 12 of chapter 3, is that they give credit where credit is due. 
They say, this is not us, this is Jesus. Don't get this wrong. Don't, they say in verse 12, when Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Like, have you guys not been listening? Have you not been paying attention? Jesus was with you, he died and he came back. Okay, we just had a sermon, like last chapter, <laughs> about who this risen savior is. He says, why, why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power and godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. And then, catch this, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and whom you know. So faith that comes through Jesus has given him the perfect health in front of all of you. And so as we begin to help people navigate what is going on in this new reality that Jesus has created, I think the first and foremost thing that we have to do is help people understand this is nothing that we do, but this is Jesus. Be careful taking credit for something that Christ has done. Because again, we cannot get wrong that it is Jesus and it is Jesus alone who is the one that can bring death back to life, brokenness back to wholeness. Like it is Jesus. And that's what Peter and John don't want these people to misunderstand. And consistently throughout the book of Acts, we see that again later on as, as Paul is preaching. And again, they, they mistake him for gods and he, he loses his mind on people. And he, he just says, it, it's Jesus. Don't get it wrong, it's Jesus. And so as you help people navigate, as you, empowered by the Spirit, help people navigate the new reality that Jesus has created, my prayer is that you would help them understand it is Jesus and Jesus alone that has done this. The second thing that I think they do is they help them understand that there is salvation in no one else. Like that, that's, again, going back to the idea of what do we need. We need Jesus. Because there is salvation in no one else. This is in verse 12 of chapter 4. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And how consistent that is with the teaching of Jesus, right? How consistent that is is what, what Jesus had said in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There is salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to help people navigate this new reality, one, we help them understand it is Jesus, and number two, we help them understand that there is salvation in no one other than him, that there is a bigger picture that is going on. There's something more that God wants for them, and it is their salvation, and that comes only through the work of Jesus Christ. We've got to go quick. And so uh, number three, I think what, what they do is they help people understand that there is a response that needs to happen to this. And verse 17 of chapter three, it says, and now brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance. And so at some level there are people who do not know Jesus and it is our, our job to help them move from ignorance to a sense of knowing to a sense of believing because knowing is not necessarily believing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people who know Jesus that do not follow him. And so he says, you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back 
so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as Messiah. And then jumping down into verse 26, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning you away from your evil ways. And so at some level there is a cause. We help people navigate this new reality that there is, there is something wrong in us that we must turn away from. Right, that's the idea of, of, of repenting, as Jim kind of talked about a couple weeks or last week, this idea of metanoia, to change your mind. So there's, there's an acknowledgement that there's something broken in who I am and how I operate. And so because of that, I have to turn away from that and turn to Jesus. And that's the big thing we want kids to understand as we talk about this idea of repenting often, is that it's not just turning from our sin, but bigger than that is it's turning to Jesus. Do you get the Jesus thing yet this morning? I hope so. But then the final piece of this, the final piece of this that I love is in verse 13 of chapter 4. And this is the response of the religious elite. It says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that, he, that they had been with Jesus. Did you catch that? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. There was something different about how Peter and John operated that made these people understand that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And so the final, final challenge I have for you this morning as we begin to, as, as we kind of think about this idea of helping people navigate this is as we help them understand that it is Jesus and Jesus alone that creates salvation for us. And so because of that reality, we need to turn from our wickedness and turn back to Jesus. Church, I want, I want us to do that with a boldness. Like, I, w- I want you to be bold in this. Love what Paul says in Romans 1. He says, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, is, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I am not ashamed. I think far too often we apologize for talking about Jesus. Hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I'd, I'd love to kind of talk to you, but I, we, I think we got to talk about Jesus. I, I just never get that in Scripture. I never get an apology in Scripture for talking about Jesus. And the cool thing is, in, in this text, what we see is that there's a man that is standing in front of these people. And because of that, there's nothing they can say. <laughs> right? There's nothing, there's nothing you can do when there's a man walking in front of you, who used to be lame. And so as we kind of wrap everything up this morning, I guess the question that I, I have for you is this. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Like what, what do you do with the reality of Jesus this morning? Because the, the fact of the matter is, he is sitting on a throne in heaven right now empowering his church to help people navigate this new reality that he has created on the cross. And so for some of you this morning, this may be the first time that you've heard this. For some of you, this may just be another casual passing as you see Jesus walking and moving in the lives of others. For some of you, this may be another reminder to you of the deep faith and conviction that you have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But at some point, you are going to have to deal with the reality of Jesus. 
And so we're going to move into a time of communion now. So if you have the elements, I'm going to ask you to take them. And I know that this, is, this can be a relatively quick time for us. But I want you to, to consider deeply what you hold in your hands. What you hold in your hands right now is a what just happened moment. It is a moment where the reality that we live in has been completely changed because of what Jesus has done on the cross. There is something radically different about the life that we live because of what you hold. And so I'm going to ask you to deal with that reality, brothers and sisters, this morning. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you are empowered by his spirit, then I'm going to ask you to take the bread which represents his body and to eat well. And to take the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that has changed everything and to drink well.